This is the EPLOG audio experience. Quick disclaimer for a podcast, the SOS show, points discussed in this podcast should not be relied upon as conclusive medical advice in any case. The host shall not be a substitute for proper medical professional. You must seek professional help in case of any requirement. Thank you. Abdul, a worker, was found in Nagpur's Mental Health Institute. No one knew how he managed to reach there from his hometown, West Bengal. He suffered from delusions and psychosis. Hi guys, welcome to the 94th episode of the SOS show with me, Suchita. Our today's episode surrounds around the story of Abdul and mental health around marginalized communities and how corporates like Tata Trust are intervening in the space. Please welcome Dr. Tasneem Raja, our guest for today's episode. Dr. Tasneem Raja has led development of strategy and framework across a range of issues in mental health, working on building cohesive indicators that answer important questions on outcome and impact. In her current role as the lead for mental health at Tata Trust, Dr. Tasneem Raja has led the development and implementation of innovative and scale programs spanning the continuum of mental health care in the district of Nagpur in Maharashtra, and she recently completed her PhD with the University of Warwick. Hi Tasneem, welcome to our podcast, The SOS Show, and thank you for joining in, and thank you for the wonderful work that you're doing in the field of mental health, and now specifically with Tata Trust. So, Welcome. Thank you, Suchita. Thank you for having me here. Tasneem, I, I read your wonderful writings on, of course, mental health and Tata Trust. And what really caught my attention was the story of Abdul and how he sort of was found in the mental health hospital in Nagpur. And none of you guys knew that how he reached there because he reached there from Bengal. Tell me a bit about you know, your interaction with Abdul and a story that's very relatable because many Abduls are out there uh, trying to be found. So you're so right. There are many Abduls out there waiting to be found and kind of get a happy ending to their uh, stories or at least a happy outcome to their stories. Uh, so if you had seen Abdul, and I'm, I'm going to have trouble remembering him as Abdul because obviously that's a changed name. But uh, okay. if you had seen Abdul prior to the intervention or prior to Udan's presence in the hospital, he would have appeared to you as any other patient in the hospital. Yeah, And uh, institutions by their nature yeah. take away identity and um uh, and any f- sense of uh, humanness, you know, and that's true yes. for any form of institution, not just a mental hospital, right? You, yeah. you are part of a routine, you're a number, etc. It's like your KD number, those or gara types. Like, so, yeah. yeah, so that's the nature of uh, uh, an institution. And that's how Abdul was. And uh, when the intervention started, so what was the core of the intervention? The core of the intervention was human interaction. And when okay. that started, I mean, at, at the 
base of it all was connecting with the individual as a human being not as a mm. patient not as a person living with schizophrenia but as someone who was human had the same desires abilities etc which were of course clouded by the disorder you know but yeah. uh, the potential of humanness remains and that's that's the connect and very quickly we saw that um, he responded like to most other patients in the hospital or people living in the mental hospital he responded to the uh, to that human connection and as uh, interventions grew in the hospital and as more and more engagement pathways grew uh, he was one of the people who who he was in fact one of the first set of people who were kind of allotted to those interventions and uh, when you know constantly amazes me how just being in an environment does uh, changes you no one you know no one taught him certain skills and and the conversations he would have with me because uh, you know one of the pathways that we use for engagement and training skill development is the uran office itself which is in the mental hospital premises right and the mm. closed wards are all quite a distance away it's a 52 acre campus so it's mm -hmm. a journey that people have to actually take to reach their workplace which would be the uran office and you know it instills that sense of um, of the real world yeah and uh, and his interactions with the team the way he uh, gelled so to speak in the environment told a lot and i remember one occasion when uh, he was the only person in the pantry and i had a visitor and um, he was the one who brought in the uh, the water and the and the tea and the coffee you know and uh, there were no coasters on my table he put mm -hmm. the tray aside he went back found those coasters brought them we never taught him you know how to do this nice. it was just a matter yeah. of observation yeah lovely lovely and, and this was how many years back this week so uh abdul i think you know now this is going to be slightly difficult but i i'm not um it was 1920 is uh, uh when the first set of people were being rehabilitated you know so it was some, right. somewhere around that time and of course so it was before the lockdown around around 2020 is when you found abdul is it Abdul the was always already living in the hospital uh, when we right. got in, right? So uh, right. it's that right. uh, during that time, around the year nineteen twenty nineteen, that Abdul's 2019. we could trace Abdul's family. And again, how did we trace him? He was there in the hospital, and the hospital does have a process, you know. But what happens is, as the person engages more and more, you know, um, the individual attention that the person gets, etc. led to conversations and we have a very young team of uh, mm. a, a very multidisciplinary young team who are very tech savvy like today's generation you know so they pieced mm. together the puzzle you know it was words and phrases that he said the way he right. talked about his life and that's how they could trace his family lovely so of course I'm going to come back to where and how is Abdul now. But before that, this new tell me, there's so many Abduls out there, both the genders, and in a story like Abdul, 
what are the biggest barriers that you see uh, when you interact with people uh, uh, when we uh, when we talk about uh, severe mental health disorders and having no support system so the biggest um, the i would say the biggest bedfellow to mental ill health is poverty hmm. you know see the journey right. of homelessness is a journey it doesn't yes. happen overnight yeah you know and uh, several factors contribute to that journey yeah it is it is the lack of resources it is yeah. uh, the very vulnerable situation that a family is in lack of services uh, and even if services are present lack of comprehensive services because medication alone is not enough it's just one in the toolbox that you have so what about the psychosocial services the rehabilitation the stigma that accompanies mental illness the lack of yeah. information that communities have about this you know the misconceptions and the myth. so uh, there's a whole range of barriers right sure, sure i would say that abdul's story is is a story of opportunities for the many thousands of abduls out there there's just a handful that find their way to a mental hospital which is the mm. single entity with the mandate for care mm. and nowhere else a beggar's home any other institutional space or the street nowhere yeah. will abdul have found care yeah yeah but tell me tasneem if the story was let's say that it was not a story of poverty but it was a story of say an urban india middle class story do you think there would have been difference when it it came to uh, you know treatments uh, it came to taking care being taken care of i often say this that um the first thing to remember is the barriers around mental health and mental illness and wellness transcend uh, um you know while we say poverty is the, one of the most significant aspects you know but yeah. that does not mean to say that um uh, mental illness does not uh, exist anywhere else and stigma is not necessarily mitigated by education and resource alone yeah uh the yeah. second thing that i want to point out that institution is not for walls okay you yeah. will find institution institutionalization is an attitude yeah and you can have and i think in founding fuel i have talked about this that uh of course the trajectory and the journeys will be very different yeah but um it's not uncommon to find an elite family who will refuse treatment just because yeah. they are uh, worried about or or they have not dealt with the stigma you know i wouldn't say worried because i think stigma is very real and it's the it's you you can say whatever you want from the outside but it is that family's experience and their challenges and yeah. their perception that matters eventually right so um, so often you find this and i can give you an example of something we came across while we were working in while i was you know i'm when i was still um 
in the early phases of Uran. And this was a private case from a very rich family in Nagpur and a psychiatrist whom I know very well. And yeah. uh, the family refused electroconvulsive therapy. Uh, and that was the last, uh, I mean, that was an option that was being recommended for severe depression. And um, the person then committed suicide, you know. And uh, look, there are so many um, challenges around this, right? Yeah. And the other yeah. factor is the human rights violations that are closely linked to mental uh, illness, both overt and covert, yes. right? Yes. Yeah. Human rights violation. I think that's that's a very a very big point. But I'm going to be coming to that. But before that, does me tell me. When the mental health program started in Nagpur, specifically in Nagpur, why was Nagpur as the belt that you guys, that Tata Trust chose to be in? Okay. So as a philanthropy, as India's oldest philanthropy, Tata yeah. Trust has worked in mental health when mental health wasn't even a word spoken aloud. Yeah. So uh, when I joined the trust 15 years ago, I found funding that then went back to almost three decades. Right. Yeah, there were bits and pieces. And of course, we picked those up and we built them into a cohesive program that uh, that that is diverse, had different partnerships all over the country. It was based on those partnerships that the then government uh, of Maharashtra invited the Tara Trust as an expert partner. Uh, uh, to work on uh, uh, in the Nagpur uh, in Nagpur and on the, we started the work with the mental hospital, right? So right. see, we globally, if you look at the discourse on mental health, you know, political will is a absolutely a key ingredient in shaping yes. mental health care. Yeah. And when we found that political will, we mm. grabbed it. Lovely. Yeah. Yes, I think that that's that's the greatest point. Political will. Do you think that this is a model that needs to be replicated in so many other areas of India, which are in need of it? So definitely. And that was the idea. So see, look, hmm. uh, uh, why did we do a mental hospital? Why did we talk hmm. reform of a mental hospital? In a lot mm. of ways, this is contrary to the mainstream global mental health dialogue of deinstitutionalization, right? Mm. Uh, yes. High-income countries have gone to deinstitutionalize. There are about seven countries in the world that have closed down mental hospitals, right? Data from mm. those countries is a mixed bag. Yeah, there is uh, there is enough evidence to say that there is an increase in homelessness and in prison and in uh, in people uh, living in prisons who actually have a mental illness rather than who are uh, criminals. Given all of this and the fact that bulk of India's care lies in its institutions, which are 47 across the country, set up during yeah. a, a different era. Yeah. So deinstitutionalization may not be the best way forward. You know, see, look, there's a whole lot of stuff that, uh, that determines uh, global dialogue, right? And there is, uh, there are different ratifications uh, of different kinds of global positions and/or conventions, and yeah. how that translates into the reality on ground for a country uh, needs to be balanced. So I think uh, India's situation is very different, like many are, 
and so is the case with many other LMICs. And I think we need to find a way forward that works for us. And therefore, I think uh, institutions in our country look after very, very vulnerable people. Yeah. yeah. And kudos, yeah, they, they do that. They, they look after people who would have otherwise been homeless or have died. Yes. So, yes. so if we downscale these, where are these people going to go? In a social framework where the family system is constantly depleting, where there is depleting social capital, yeah, uh, and uh, an absence of social security measures, we still have a way to go, right? Like, I mean, yeah. a US is a 200 year plus country. Uh, we are not yet there. We Our social security framework is evolving. So in the absence of anything else that can take care of such vulnerable people, where will they go? Yeah. Yeah. Since you mentioned political will, Tasneem, tell me this in terms of the political will in our country. Do you see a change that's happening when it comes to mental health care reforms, when it comes to budgeting or, you know, giving money in the space of mental health? Do you see that we still have an implemented Mental Health Care Act that was in 2017? So what, how do we get the political will to... Uh, see a transformation so look i think uh, unfortunately covid happened okay and the flip side the opportunity in that is i think it it hit everyone like a ton of bricks that mental health uh, and ill health was a reality for everyone it wasn't just few people who were suffering it was everyone's reality and yeah. i think that gave impetus and uh, uh, you know, there are several examples of the fact that India is has now placed mental health, given prominence to mental health care. The 2016 yeah. National Survey, uh, the, the Mental Health Care Act. Yes, of course, we have not implemented the act. But the very first step, now if you read the Mental Health Care Act of India today, it will almost uh, sound utopian to you. And it might read similar to the Act of Australia. Yeah, but mm -hmm. it's it's an indication of unimaginable political will to commit to doing this. It may not happen immediately, but there is a mm. commitment that the country has signed up for, you know, and it unless you nice. write it down and you put it out there, it's not gonna happen. Right. So that's the first step. And yes, we have a journey, but we've started. Yeah. And look at the latest budget announcement. Yeah, so yes. uh, you know that uh, there is a budgetary allocation. We are mm. looking at technology as an enabler for reaching mental health care services. And I happen to be on the PMO panel, uh, the expert panel uh, that is constituted after the budget. So I know that there is a lot happening in the ecosystem. The Ay Ayushman Bharat lists mental health as one of the mm. 12 services in the health and wellness centers. Yes, it's going to take time to roll out. You know, so but yes. that's all right. At we are at we it. Are there. We are at it. Yeah, yes. we are at it. We are there. Yeah. Hmm. 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 You spoke about human rights violation, this name. Uh, when we're talking about mental health programs in India, do you see that the challenges differ when it comes to rural mental health and urban mental health? Do you see that we are, you know, dissecting the two? dividing the two and working accordingly? Or do you see that we are 
using everything that one form for both rural and urban mental health so if you use one form it doesn't work it simply yes. will not work you know yeah. so there are positives and there are uh, there are opportunities and there are pitfalls in both the kind in the different kinds of environments and we are not even talking tribal here but yeah. um uh for example there is there are definitely more services available in the urban milieu right yes uh, yeah. the the uh, the pitfall is reaching people hmm. yeah urban spaces are very different there is lack of collectivization opportunities in in the rural social framework uh there hmm. are this there there is a tighter social capital there is a tighter social framework that allows for more cohesive um work at the level of the community and a gaon mein jao you hmm. call for a meeting there'll be 100 people who will come around try doing that yeah. at a urban uh, uh square it's difficult hmm. right people don't have the time yes. they are passerbys yeah yes so and uh, uh rural spaces um you know have have systems and processes that allow for reintegration into communities and social networks a little mm. more easier yeah. it's less mm. competitive in a lot of ways in mm. terms of sheer survival so mm-hmm. for example one of the things that we do uh, in the udan program is hmm. farming based uh, restoration of skills mm-hmm. so we've used acreage of the hospital to create a farming setup where people can uh, do different kind or be, be trained in different kinds of jobs and we have seen that hmm. even if the person's pulling weeds you know a rural family is in a position to take them back lovely uh, so uh, and this is not of course uh, you know one paint brush doesn't work for everyone but this is our general experience that uh, it's it's a little more easier but are you also saying when you say this and this is a very important example uh, are you saying that in urban areas urban cities which is more educated uh the stigma and the bias is on the higher side no i would say that there are higher challenges uh mm. and again for example let's take again this is a case that we have worked with uh yeah. you know where um it was a nuclear family this is a brother uh you know and this is the brother's family uh that this person is living with yeah and that particular brother uh, the the caregiver brother had to go to work uh, morning to very late night yeah mm. and uh, the sister in law felt ill equipped to deal with the service user yeah and uh, you know uh, you we what i would say is we need to understand the family perspective it wasn't as if they they wanted to shun their responsibility or they didn't want to take care of the person they felt simply ill equipped to deal with it you know and they figured out a way of doing it which we thought wasn't good or wasn't mm-hmm. in the benefit of the person they gave him a separate mm-hmm. room uh, which was isolated which we thought mm-hmm. would further the person's um disability uh and um uh, uh the sense of social isolation that he faced you know so we 
you assess the situation, you work mm -hmm. with the family in possible solutions. Now, this kind of comprehensive service is not really available, right? In terms of case yes. management, etc. When the caregiver is at work the whole day, getting yeah. the person to an OPD for regular medications is that much more difficult. Yeah. Uh, so the busyness of life could be one of the reasons. And the lack of survival resources. could be. Yeah, mm. survival, mm. the lack of resources, mm. the multiple challenges that uh, people face living in an urban environment, you know, and the mm. lack of uh, adequate social support systems. Even so the challenges are mom, more... If you are yeah. a mom alone at home with a little yeah. kid, you want to take a bath, yeah. you, unless you have a willing neighbor to look after the child, it's difficult. Yeah. So, can so you the challenges are yeah. more. Yeah, much more. When, the challenges. It com when it comes to, so, so the challenges are more when it comes to the urban setting. Yes. But what about the understanding this name? What about the stigma? So how, you know, in, in a framework where not much work has happened against stigma. See, there's, there's now mm. a growing body of evidence on stigma, right? It's mm. not education. We know for a fact that it's it not is not education. knowledge sharing that alters stigma. Okay. Mm. Or it does not have a very good mm. impact on stigma reduction. Right. right? See, right. Uh, you know, you may be a very, and this has happened to, I think, the best of us. We, mm. you are very, most of us are well-educated and, you know, we all go through ups and downs of life. When you're going through a significantly down time in life, you know, yes. you turn to things which you rationally know may not help you, but still which give you the comfort, you know. You would go to a famous temple, you would go tie a tavi somewhere, Say leke anything, a, a whole range. I don't know if I'm articulating my point well. What I'm trying to say is that that uh, we need anchors, and people find different kinds of anchors. It is for mm. us as the mental health professionals to work with those anchors and build a more evidence-based system around this. Mm. You know, and examples of this are working with faith healers where they learn mm. to recognize symptoms of psychosis and um, interesting yeah so mm. imagine a priest a malvi or a sadhu mm. or or a pujari telling a family that puja to karo lekin saath mein dawai bhi lo i think that will have far more and we know that programs like this exist and they have far more impact than me yeah. going and telling them as a mental health professional ke dawai bhi lo and That's we always point. say this, the vibe or yes. treatment be low, not just the vibe, because treatment is a, a comprehensive mm. set of things, not just medication, Great point. right? Great point. Great point. Great point. Uh, Tasneem, tell me this. We have multiple infrastructural challenges when it comes to mental health. And, you know, I being in Delhi, I have personally faced this uh, in terms of, you know, trying to get, um, uh, you know, uh, a help for one of our family members. Terrible infrastructure in a metro city like Delhi, for example. Uh, in your article, you mentioned that uh, the mental health institutions have been 200-year-old plus institutes that, you know, we are still, uh, you know, using and you're, you're sending our loved ones there. What has been your primary learnings uh, when, uh, you know, working in the regional mental health institute in Nagpur about the transformation of these uh, mental health institutes? So, look, we had a clinical trial on the work that we were doing, right? So, yeah. 
it's not just anecdotal. We, we built robust evidence around this. The trial protocol paper is already out and the trial findings will soon be out. What did we find out? So we, we studied one, we, we did reform. I mean, we created a systematic package of reform. What does reform really mean? And mm. what happens when reform, when, when there's reform? Okay. So we measured it on, on service user outcomes. Eventually, mm -hmm. does it make a life in the? Uh, does it make a difference to the life of the end user or not? And we looked at four things. We looked at mm -hmm. symptoms. We uh, looked at um, uh, disability levels, uh, social and occupational functioning, and quality of life. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, what did we find out? So we used two different types of things in a clinical trial. You're comparing, right? So we used uh, reform, uh, macro reform changing the hospital infrastructure, the environment, the standards of mm. care that a hospital provides. And yeah. uh, we added the individual patient services package using uh, intensive case management, which is used the world over. It's called ACT or assertive community treatment, you know, which mm. actually originated in a mental hospital. So we brought that technique back into the mental hospital. It basically means you work intensively with the patient and you, you, you assess the needs of the person and you tailor make the intervention to the needs of the person, right? So we use mm. that. What did we see? We saw that the, the change actually happens with the macro reform. Okay. And uh, we saw a huge change. And that change mm. is uh, not really seen in psychiatry. Like we, we saw a seven point shift on the disability scale. It's a standardized scale called HUDAS, which is WHO Disability Assessment Scale. We saw a seven mm. point shift uh, and it takes about six to nine months to make that shift. Yeah. After the start of reform. Yeah. Mm. That's mm. the mm. first and most important point. The the intensive case management or the entire working with the patient makes a difference to the patient's uh, uh, perception of care and how the patient understands care, but it does not make a change in the outcomes. Okay. And this right. is borne out by global literature. So people right. who received the intensive case management talked about a sense of dignity, a sense of autonomy, empowerment, choice, all those kinds of things, which the people who were just receiving reform did not talk about at all. But in terms mm. of the actual measurable outcomes, the disability levels were the same. They had moved for both the groups. Mm -hmm. And what was the cost of reform? We did this on a four-year. It's a it's a health economic analysis, which we did. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. the uh, cost of reform, see, at an average, mota moti, the government spends about 100 rupees per person per day, cumulatively, mota moti, yeah. okay? Mm. And the additional cost of reform is rupees 10 per person per day. Mm. So we did, I mean, in doing so, what, what did we try to do? One, we created a systematic package of reform that, hey, do this, 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 and get the institutions from where they are to the next point. Yeah. Mm. And mm. Uh, uh, in doing this, this is the kind of money that will be needed. Mm. Yeah. Right. So that's the whole idea. And how do you scale a model? You can't scale a model on, 
on good visuals and goodwill. There should be evidence before we are asking the government to take up this as a practice and scale the model, right? So that's what yeah. we did. Yeah. So tell me, Tasneem, now, where is Abdul now after, you know, having met him, worked with him? That was in 2019. Now we're in 2022. And the pandemic has almost ended, hopefully. Hopefully. So Abdul is at home. Abdul is back hmm. with family. And many That's things were done hmm. to keep Abdul safe in his hometown. Yeah. yeah? And okay. uh, uh, we rely on a collaborative network of mental health organizations, especially civil society organizations that yeah. connect with local services that are available and ensure mm. that Abdul has access to medications. He has access to services. His ca- you know, again, the human connect. Yeah, The yes. case manager that worked with Abdul uh is constantly in touch. It's more like a, it's more like a routine kind of a thing, uh, you know, where either Abdul will call up the case manager or the case manager will call up Abdul, and they're routinely in touch. I, I just get to know uh, by the by, you know, kind of. Yeah, yeah. So of course, keeping track of the person, whoever has been a part of your journey, journey of the institute, and seeing that they are connected to the local areas, and in case yeah. they need any help, and then help is accessible. And his family, of course, accepted him back, and they understand what he went through. So we don't. Our, our strategy for rehabilitation is uh, slightly different. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't. You know, I. I know this is slightly controversial, but I don't believe in rehabilitation just because the person's living in an institution. Yes, it is important for the person to have autonomy and to empower the person to be able to live in the mainstream. But I also think that very vulnerable people, it is the institution's responsibility to take care of very vulnerable people who may actually uh, face bigger problems if they were just rehabilitated without the commensurate uh, social support network. Uh, in rehabilitating, we uh, we have different options. One, restoring the patient back to the family of origin. Mm. Uh, that's one option. The uh, second, in 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 places where or in cases where uh, there is no family to go back to, or the family simply not in a position to accept the person back. And here there yeah. is no judgment call. You know, each family has their own journey and uh, yeah. their own situation. So we we. We approach this from a position of understanding rather than anything else. So Mm. then we look at community uh, rehabilitation options. And there are about 20 people today who are living in community uh, uh, spaces. Uh, Our effort here is to link the person to viable uh, employment. So that, see, grant-based community rehabilitation is something that I'm a little worried of, you know, because... um, Till we don't have those mechanisms in place, it's not as if people shouldn't live in the community. They should, of course they should. But till we do not have those mechanisms in place, uh, it is important to ensure continuity for the person. And that is why I have taken a slightly different approach to other uh, models that, that work in this space. In the first case, when we are restoring the person back to family, we look at two things and we work towards getting those two things in place. One is at least one viable source of livelihood for the family. Mm. 
yeah because if the family doesn't have a viable source of livelihood taking care of somebody who's so severely ill might be very very detrimental and the second is access to treatment so we work we do a lot of background work in putting these two things which i call the minimum requirement in place before we uh, start the process of rehabilitating the patient the person and i mm-hmm. truly believe that you know if the person comes back into the pool of homelessness because those vulnerabilities were not adequately addressed he or she may not be lucky this time around to find themselves in a mental hospital mm-hmm. yeah that's very important but tasneem tell me when he, when abdul went back to his family uh did you have to educate the family about oh, yes, a, what he went through yeah yes, so, so of course you went through that process and is abdul now working is independent yes so they have a family business like i said rural families are very different right so abdul yes. had two options one was agri based work that he was doing in the area mm. and also with his family and his family are karigars you know and mm, it was yeah. a chance conversation in which i found out you know i was um, i came out of my uh, cabin for some water or something and abdul was standing around uh, photocopying i think and i just stood by to chat with him and it just he started telling me about uh, you know that he would um, do embroidery on sarees i was so intrigued so i started talking to mm-hmm. him i said tell me more you know ye kaise seekha tumne kahan seekha uh and he started telling me ke mera ghar mein aisa karta tha sab log and you know and uh, he I, i mean i get a lot of embroidery done for myself so i i'm well aware you know i have gone to several mm-hmm. karigars and i know how it's done right so when he yeah. described the khatli and you know ke hum itna bada is pe lagate hain i was very I'm, i was familiar with it i was so kicked and uh i actually टॉक टू द टीम एंड टोल देम दैट ए चलो ढूंढते हैं खाटली वाटली लाते हैं मैं एक साड़ी लाती हूँ उसको देते हैं लेट्स गेट हिम डू डू इट नहीं हुआ ही जस्ट वी यू नो बाई देन हिज मम वॉज कमिंग एंड ही वेन बैक होम सो बट बिफोर हिज मम केम वेरी ओल्ड मदर केम टू टेक हिम यू नो lots of work was done with the family. We identified a cousin in Nagpur. We called the cousin. You know, we 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 typically spend a lot of time preparing. preparing the family to receive the person nice nice that's i think that's one of the most important aspect of getting the person back with the family of making them understand what the problem is what the illness possibly is there are simple things you know for example which which happens mm. by virtue of institutionalization right mm. in a in a uh, gender specific ward right male wards yeah. are separate mm. and female wards are separate uh the general behavior is you know oh you take out your clothes anywhere and you go into the washroom it's not just a factor of the illness it's factor of the way you're living right you mm-hmm. when you've lived like that for many years it takes a little time to change your behavior to the environment when the person goes and behaves in a similar manner at home people are shocked <laughs> you know and they attributed to the person relapsing or being ill so very nuanced preparation is done with the family on what to expect you know yeah. uh, and how what they can do to make those things we work with the person on the one hand and the family on the other that's that's lovely but just to probe a bit more there if i can use the word probe this team tell me uh 
if i'm not wrong abdul had schizophrenia did he yeah he had psychosis were the family able to understand what is the meaning of psychosis yes it's very simple to understand psychosis it's easy okay. to identify difficult to treat but it's easy to explain and it's easy very for somebody easy. to understand yeah yeah it. it's not difficult if you take the time and you um, use culturally relevant uh, way of engaging with uh, people people can understand uh, schizophrenia fairly simply really yeah that's, so what's easy to explain are the positive symptoms of schizophrenia hmm you know and the fact that um, there are chemical changes in the brain which create a different effect mm. so when when you know you and i respond to the voices that we actually hear yes in the case of schizophrenia the person responds to a voice which is not really present yes so it translates into very simple concepts you know and why does that happen no one really knows it's a change in the chemical uh, composition uh, you know it's it's something to do with your brain something happens yes 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 lovely i mean i'm glad that the family understood that and and i think it needs more understanding uh maybe it was simpler to make somebody in the rural like you said it's easier to make somebody in the rural space understand not to sure having spoken to so many people in the urban cities uh if they even get uh, or maybe they're not ready to get what a psychosis is and what a schizophrenia is or you know you need somebody simpler to make them understand i think that the understanding is uh i think the understanding is not there you know but but since we're talking about the the research uh uh for example in a space like schizophrenia we had we had done a couple of um podcasting episodes on the research work on schizophrenia and uh, since you have been working in the field tell me the name in terms of the medical part the medication part do you think that uh we are there with the research work when it comes to severe mental health disorders see uh the whole the whole spectrum of mental disorders and mental illnesses you know for a long time actually there are there have been no new molecules really speaking you know and it's not mm. because of lack of research yeah right. so there is research around the world on uh, different aspects of illnesses yeah mm. uh, there's a whole lot of research for example on alzheimers we've not cracked yes. it yet Yeah. let's hope that yeah. as we get better understanding the human brain is very complex yeah and what yeah. we don't know can fill i think millions of libraries let alone one mm. so so um, you say you're saying that the understanding is still we're still trying to make we're still trying to understand something like a schizophrenia psychosis we don't know where it comes from how it happens why it happens we have we have a broader spectrum of understanding of things of what we have put it till now but we still don't have a deeper truth maybe you know. i think the reality is evolving see we know uh, you know there's a i uh, and i don't want to just talk of uh, an area that i am not mm. the best on yeah but what i do know is there's a whole lot of science around genetic predisposition the vulnerability the genetic factors of vulnerability etc uh there is a whole lot of work on the on the neurochemical changes that happen in the brain so it's an evolving body of knowledge yeah there is no perfect uh um i mean 
there's a whole lot of illnesses out there where we don't have perfect answers, cancer being a case in point. Yeah. So similarly for mental illnesses, I think it's an evolving body of knowledge and I would leave it to the experts really, the, the researchers who work in these areas to opine or to speak. You know, I, I think it would be out of place for me to say anything mm -hmm. on this. Okay, Tasneem, thank you so much. Uh, it uh, was great talking to you and uh, thank you for sharing your knowledge and experience with us. And uh, uh, I really hope to perhaps, you know, one day connect with you deeply in terms of, you know, being uh, visiting one day in one of the mental health institutes and checking actually what and how much of work is really being put there to make the lives of people better. So I hope you. you can come too and thank you for having me. Do we quickly need to replicate the mental health programs like the one implemented in Nagpur? But what are we going to do about the frictions that come along with it? If you have an answer to this question, connect with us and we are going to put this on our show. Till then, take good care of yourself. Follow us on the SOS Show pod and you can find me on LinkedIn.